Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today is a different type of topic. I generally talk about anxiety and OCD. I mean, that's pretty much all I talk about. And today I want to talk about grief. I want to talk about my grief journey, where we're at, where we've been, and a new resource that I have created for grief. And you know me, I just, when things are impacting my family, eventually something comes out that is to help other people with the same struggle. And it's the same thing with grief. But before we get started, I want to thank NoCD for sponsoring this episode. NoCD offers affordable, effective, convenient therapy. They are available in the U.S. and outside the U.S. And you can schedule your free 15-minute consultation to see if NoCD is the right fit for you and your child. Just go to treatmyocd.com. That's treatmyocd.com. I'll leave a link in the show notes. So let's dive into this today. This is more of a personal episode. And so if you follow my work or you follow my story, this might be interesting to have a little update. If you are going through grief or your child is going through grief, the story will be even more relevant to you. But grief is universal. And so we can't escape grief. Grief is going to impact all of us at some point or another. And when our kids are struggling with anxiety or OCD, it can be even more overwhelming, or they actually can be more resilient, to be honest. And when we are already dealing with our kids' anxiety or OCD, and then we add grief to our plate, that can certainly be disorienting and discombobulating. And so it affects all of us and it affects us, those of us that are on this journey with anxiety or OCD, because it's just universal. So we'll start from the beginning and we'll move to the to the current. For those of you that haven't been following me for a long, long period of time in the beginning of 2021. So it's been two years now. My husband suddenly passed away and it was just a complete shock. You know, I think sometimes when you have a longer runway for grief, it can help with the trauma aspect of grief. I think grief is hard no matter what, but I think sometimes when people are diagnosed and then, you know, they're going through treatment and then someone eventually passes away. It's still incredibly hard because grief is just so hard no matter what. But I think when someone is fine one day and then gone the next, that adds an additional layer of trauma, I think, to grief and really can impact kids with anxiety or OCD too, because this person was here one day and now they're gone. And so my husband was in a work training and he got injured. So he was a federal agent. So they had to do like these night trainings every quarter to just keep, keep them in shape. And he ripped his Achilles tendon. And I remember him coming home and we kind of laughed about it. He was limping and I was like, what is wrong with you? And, and he was like boasting about how he's like so cool that he was able to get through the whole course, the whole tactics course, even with this injury, because we didn't know what was wrong with him at that time. And we got and we talked about getting him in to, you know, see someone right away. And then when he saw someone, they're like, yeah, it's completely ripped. You're going to need, you can have surgery or you can risk it and you might not get any movement back in your calf. 
And it was just so casual. It was like such a minor thing. And, and he got into someone, right? I was like, let's just get you into someone right away. I already said that part. <laughs> I'm like trying to think about the story. And so it was like a no brainer. It's like, well, why would we wait for you to like lose mobility in your calf? He was a runner and he liked to run. And so it seemed like kind of a, a, a no brainer that let's just get you into surgery and get it fixed. It's like a quick outpatient surgery, not a big deal. And he was making jokes as soon as he was out of surgery, you know, that he's, he was making jokes with the, the guys in there. And it was like, not a big deal. And he struggled, you know, he wasn't able to bounce back. And I think he's like really hard on himself for, you know, not feeling like he can move around too much. And he kind of felt really fatigued and long story short, it's too late. It's already been too long, (laughs) but I think it was like a week after his surgery. I mean, I won't go into all the details as far as like he called the doctor and the doctor's office said he was fine when he was having like shoulder pain and some pain while he was breathing. Like there were some things that were like, just not okay about what happened, but he went to bed. We had like dinner and he went to bed and, you know, he's still obviously like in a casty type of thing with his leg. And the next day he was just sleeping in. And I was like, I don't know why he's sleeping in so long. And so eventually I went to go check on him because I was annoyed. And I was like, you need to be getting up and moving around. Like this is part of like why you're not like recovering fast enough. And I found him unresponsive and just the trauma of everything that ensued after that. I actually thought he had already passed away because I won't go into like the gory details of it, but long story short, he did wind up going to the ER and like within five minutes, they called it and said that, you know, he passed away. And so having to go and pick up my kids from school, my older daughter was home. It was just a mess. You know, he was 42. We were like, you know, married for 12 years and we were in the middle of our chapter. And for that to be like just so disrupted and just ended up so abruptly was so overwhelming. My kids already struggle with anxiety or OCD. And so, and I had, I mean, I had a lot of stuff. I have social anxiety, I have general anxiety disorder. I don't have health anxiety issues, but it's interesting how stuff like that can come up now. You can really go one way or the other. And my daughter, who didn't have health anxiety issues, who had like a metaphobia, the fear of throwing up and sensory motor OCD, for quite a while after that, she had a fear of going to bed that she would die or that we would die, which is totally understandable in that context. Like, it wasn't even an anxiety or OCD theme. It was like, yeah, of course you're worried about that because that's pretty much what happened. But OCD did glum on and it started to like create some compulsions around her where she would have to say, certain things, or I'd have to do certain things at bedtime in order to make sure that we were, we were all going to be alive the next day. And, you know, it was hard for all of us, but as I was trying to navigate grief with my kids, one thing that frustrated me and one thing that really overwhelmed me. And if you are going through your own grief, maybe this resonates with you is just the overwhelm of actually experiencing grief in and of itself. The sudden loss was overwhelming, you know, and relationships are messy and you're like in the middle of a messy relationship and then it's just abruptly ends. You don't get to say goodbye. There's no neat, tidy, like little bow at the end. But with grief also comes just this disorientation, this like memory fog. And I will say, before I go deeper into like kind of the physiological impacts of grief, it's different depending on who you lose and how you lose them, I think. I mean, grief is universal, but my mom passed away 
And she was young. She was 59 when she passed away. I mean, I'm 50 now. So I think about that like nine years from now, that's young. And it was sudden as well in the sense that when she wasn't a healthy person, she was diabetic, she was overweight. You know, we all knew she wasn't healthy at all, but it was sudden. She thought she was having an asthma attack. She went to the ER, they gave her albuterol and they actually wound up fast forwarding her death because she was actually having a heart attack and they didn't check for that. So that was a mistake too. But she kind of held on for a while for like three or four days, maybe six days. I don't even remember before she passed away, which in some way it kind of like gets your brain to process that loss. But she was my mom and it was obviously incredibly sad, but it was, it was nothing compared to this loss where it's someone who is like your other extension. It's like your, your arm, you know, it's like losing an arm. It's like losing a limb. It's like losing part of your identity. And so I think when it's a partner, someone in your household or like a child, God forbid, I feel like that someone who's like lives with you on a daily basis and is part of your routine, and there's not an expectation that they're going to pass away, I feel like that is so much more disorienting for the family. And that aspect of grief is a lot to physiologically handle. And I didn't see a lot of help around that topic, especially for kids. I was overwhelmed. I was having physical pain. I didn't have any friends because my husband was kind of my go-to person. I have social anxiety and I tend to like to just have like deep one-on-one relationships and he was enough for me. And he was a pretty, it's it's kind of ironic because he was a very outgoing person. He's like, he's the jokester. He, everybody knew him at work and uh, a lot of people had a lot to say about him when he died, you know, as far as his memorial. And so he he appeared to be a very outgoing person, but he actually was an outgoing introvert. He really didn't want to do anything when he got home and he was tired and he had very low energy. And we were just kind of happy with with our own little unit. And so we did everything together. We ran errands together. And so all our socialization was just between us, which now I look at it and I think, well, I mean, it served us okay at the time, but it didn't really set me up for success after he was gone. Because when you lose that, then you're really isolated. Didn't have any friends or family. All my family's not local and we weren't very close at the time. And so there was really zero, zero, uh, safety net. And so it's really, really isolated. And even though I have this online community and stuff, I'm the helper, you know, and, and it's virtual. So it's like, there was a lot of support online. And I really appreciated that. But on my day to day, it was a very lonely, isolating experience. And my oldest daughter, she only had a few more months before she was going to leave and go to college. And so it was just, just going to be me and my two kids who at the time were nine and 11. So very overwhelming. But I remember like the, the, the inability to find stuff that actually helped my kids navigate the, the physiological and the emotional aspects of grief. There's a, there were a lot of like grief books out there and I bought every single one of them that, you know, the invisible string and there was a lot of like books about death, but none of them, my daughter just was like, nope, nope, nope. Because none of them were like really raw and were helping her understand the whole grief process. And even her therapist at the time was going through like the the stages of grief, grief is not linear. And the stages, they didn't really serve her well because 
it kind of felt like she needed to be moving into, you know, the next stage. And like that, if she was stuck on one stage, it was like she needed to move to the next one. And so I really struggled because grief was not my thing. It's not, I never liked treating grief, to be completely honest. When I had a, a general practice, I really liked the kids with anxiety and I liked the kids with OCD. I didn't like kids with grief because I loved to build skills and I loved to help them come up with solutions or exposures to get them out of the situation that they're in. And with grief, at the time, I felt like there's nothing you can fix here. It's sad and there's nothing to fix. And I don't know as a therapist what I'm supposed to do. And so even though I was a child therapist, dealing with my own kids with their grief, and they all dealt with it in a very different way, and dealing with my own grief at the same time was so overwhelming. And I think I learned from a very young age in my childhood to compartmentalize and to put everyone first and to not deal with my grief. And my daughter, on top of it, has some OCD issues around seeing people show their emotions. So she could not handle me crying. And I'm not a crier. So I don't even know if she ever saw me cry at all, which is still not healthy. But she had so much on her plate. She's an empath. She soaks up people's feelings. She can't handle people's emotions in general. She had that prior to all this happening. And so I knew she couldn't handle that. So there's a lot of closet crying. (laughs) And I didn't know how to navigate that. And I had to learn very quickly what is therapeutic and what is helpful. And I realized it took me a little while to get my beat because understandably I was a mess, but we needed to just lean in and accept this grief. And we needed to know that this grief was normal, that to feel like a a bulldozer hit you is normal when you're going through this. And to feel physical pain, like my chest physically hurt. It hurt to breathe. I thought there might've been something medically wrong with me. To to realize that you're not going to remember a lot of things, that it will be hard to eat, that things will taste like cardboard, that people, people be people. (laughs) And they have such bizarre responses to people who are grieving. No, not everybody. I had some people come out of the woodwork who were like acquaintances who, who are now my very good friends because they just showed up in such an authentic, genuine way that even though we were acquaintances and hadn't really developed deep relationships, I was just like, you're the type of person I want to be friends with. And now I have two really good friends that I wasn't, actually I have three really good friends that came out of the woodwork. One came out of the woodwork, not because of grief, but I wanted to foster, I needed new friendships. I needed new relationships, but I'm, you know, with my social anxiety, I need just deep, authentic ones. I'd like to have a few more, to be honest, and working from home and not really mingling with literally anybody. (laughs) It makes it quite a challenge, but it's helpful, you know, to have people who respond to grief in, in just a real genuine way, because a lot of times people treat you like you have the plague and you have relationships where all of a sudden they're not showing up for you. Now, I mean, in a very, really weird, bizarre way, luckily I didn't have any friends. (laughs) So the people that showed up were acquaintances or people who were in my life, you know, randomly from a a long time ago. Uh, Cause I'd been on my own, like in my own private practice since 2005. And so there's been a lot of space since I had any coworkers and I'm not one to talk to my neighbors or talk to people at school. I'm very introverted and socially anxious. It's a double doozy. And so my daughter, who is very outgoing and has had a lot of friends, she would get weird 
like weird reactions from people. And I actually had that a little bit too, although, I mean, I've heard from other young widows that, you know, their friend group was just odd with them anymore. Or like, you know, if they had a husband that passed away, it's just weird doing couple things when they were coupleless. I mean, luckily I didn't have that because I already didn't have anybody. But there were a couple of people who were really friendly before my husband died and like would like literally, I felt like would run the other way when they saw me coming because they didn't know what to say and it was awkward. And there's some people who actually just didn't acknowledge it, you know, and that's even worse, I think. And for my daughter, she had two or three best friends at the time. And they were like really like this mean group, I think, of kids because one of them said, your dad didn't die. Why would you say that? That's horrible. You know, and she's like, no, because he really did die. And then another girl said, you're, we don't want to hang out with you anymore because you're not fun anymore. And so I had a really hard time with that. <laughs> and I wasn't even the one experiencing it, but I feel for my kids. And so talking about grief in the sense of how do you handle not being able to really function, right? So you have to go back to school and you can't eat and you can't sleep. And and then people are treating you weird. Like one, they might be ignoring you. Two, they might be all, all of a sudden you're getting a lot of attention. Three, some people would use that to tease her. And so kids are mean and they don't realize like that's really inappropriate. And so there were some mean boys in her class at that year who would say things about her dead dad. And you'd think like, who would say that? But kids, kids don't know that that's a little off limits, you know? And so I was looking for resources that just validated that experience. And so I didn't find any, and I did really do my due diligence and looking. There's a lot of grief out there, a lot of grief support. And we actually found an amazing place called Billy's Place, an amazing place called Billy's Place, which is local in Arizona that we were very fortunate to find. Actually, we were told about it because they support young people. So it was like families who have lost either a partner or a child. And then the, the kids had their kids group. It's really a kid's program, but parents have their own support. And that was very huge and very pivotal and very helpful. And she loved it. And we went, my other two didn't want anything to do with it because everyone grieves in a different way. And it's important to not force people to do things because it just feels like we want to check that off the list. Like you have to do therapy or you have to do a grief therapy group because I need to feel like I'm doing my good parent deed to get you the help. Some kids may not find that helpful. That may not be the avenue to help them. But eventually with my daughter, because all three of them were different. So my oldest daughter, she didn't really, she was okay talking about it, but she didn't seem to struggle too much with it. And she was the stepdaughter of my husband. So I was married before. And so she had her dad still, although she didn't have a good relationship with him. And she had like an interesting relationship with my husband. It wasn't a close relationship. It wasn't a bad relationship. He was just like this rock. He was just there for her, but there was not a lot of closeness. And so I felt like she was much more overwhelmed with worrying about if I was going to ever be okay. And I actually, I think I held it together pretty well. I had one day, which was really scary, but the rest of the time I thought it was pretty incredible. Now that I look back, I'm like, that's amazing that I was able to hold it together like that. Being on my own, my kids did take off a whole month of school and I took off three months of work, but that time was a blur. And so my, my son, who was 11 at the time, he had a more of a rocky relationship with his dad. And so he kind of, you know, he expressed himself a little bit and then he was kind of quiet and 
not as expressive about his dad. And so he needed need to pull pull things out of him a little bit. It wasn't like he ran in the other direction when we talked about it, but he he had a bumpy relationship. And so I think it was more complicated for him. But my daughter, my 11-year-old, actually, she's she was nine at the time. That was my stomach. <laughs> I think I'm hungry. Yeah, she was nine at the time. She's 11 now. She was the most vocal and the most, I mean, she would sob at night and it was hard for her to eat and it was hard for her to sleep and her friends were being weird and change was hard. Everything was hard. And so eventually I started to talk to her in metaphors from experiencing my own grief. And I told her, you know, grief is like a rock, you know, it's just bulldozed its way into our life and it can just crush you. And I started to just talk to her about this rock. And it really was only actually one or two conversations where I just went into how, you know, sometimes it's hard to even eat because of this rock. And sometimes it it becomes really tiny. It's like a pebble that you forget that it's even there. And then all of a sudden you're at recess and boom, it pops up and you can't breathe and it's crushing you again. And it's unpredictable. You can try to get rid of this rock, but it will find its way back to you because it's part of you. And ultimately it's, it's so big because your love for this person was so big. And that made sense to her in, in a way that the other books that I was trying to find did not make sense to her. And so it became our shorthand for a little while. It's interesting though, because I talked to her about this now and she doesn't remember any of this. And I don't remember a lot about that time either. You know, I feel like there's a lot of grief amnesia that happens when you've been through a trauma. Like you really like, I really didn't feel like I started to fully get my brain back until pretty recently, to be scarily honest with you. And that's okay. I think it's just accepting that this is just part of it and that's okay. So when she was in the throes of all this, I would say to her, she would say, I don't want to talk right now. My rock is too big. Or she'd say like, my rock is just crushing me today. It's funny because she doesn't remember any of this, which is really weird. But one day I was going, I would do these desert walks and I'd go on these desert walks. Like I'd wake up in the, in the morning and it would be like 4.35 AM. And I would just go on these desert paths, like while the sun was rising. And I wasn't a walker at all. I just like, I felt like a zombie and my brain just wanted me to walk. It was very weird, but therapeutic. And as I was walking, I was like, I had started to journal and start to write my experiences. And part of it, the reason why I was journaling, because I'm not a journaler. I don't know if that's a word, but I don't, I don't really journal because I found it tedious. <laughs> it's like a, it felt like a college assignment. And I'm a very like practical person. So unless I'm writing for a reason, I tend to not like to write, which I know that is so weird. But I had written my memoir. I had written a memoir on social anxiety and it was pretty much done. I was in editing when Jimmy died. And so I was used to writing and I really liked writing memoir. And it was all about my social anxiety and how I was overcoming my social anxiety. And it's a memoir. It's about my life through social anxiety. And I was just about to shop it around and find an agent because even though I've published a few books, I've always worked directly with the publishers. One, my Anxiety Sucks book I self-published. And then my other books, I've always worked directly with the publisher. And so I was about to shop that around and then he dies. And so I did like memoir and I did like writing. And so I thought I started to journal again because I wanted to capture this time because I was worried about my memory. Um, and I think that's something that happens with grief is you worry that, that you're going to forget this person. And so I had this like 
panic that I was going to forget all my memories. And, you know, spoiler alert, I, I have, it's starting to fade. Like my memories were so solid and they're now they're getting hazy. And I had, I've always had a bad memory anyway, but it got much worse. So I started to, to journal with the intention that it might be another memoir at some point, or that I can go back and read it. I wanted to capture my emotions that were happening at that time because I knew I wouldn't remember my experience. And I also wanted to capture my memories of my husband. So I, I wrote like a second memoir. I wrote like almost all of it, which is crazy. And this is a total side note to what I was telling you before, but I started to journal and I started to journal what I was telling her. And so one day I came back and I just wrote like all about the grief rock and like how I talked to her and what we talked about and how I said it. And, and eventually as things got clearer and I started to get a clearer head, I went back and I looked at my journal. I had not looked at my journal entries because they stopped. I don't know. I have to go back and look, but I think they stopped about 11 or 12 months after he passed away. I stopped needing to do that. I stopped worrying about my memories. I had written a second memoir about my relationship with him, um, which probably will never get published. I don't know if I'd ever want to publish that, but I'm glad I wrote it because I don't remember that stuff anymore. It's so crazy how your brain, I don't know, becomes protective and you just don't, it's like partly like saying like, we're going to let you forget some of that detail so that things get softer and easier. I don't know. But my social anxiety memoir, just as a total side note, I was like, I want to get an agent for this. And I did write an epilogue about his death and how that impacted my social anxiety. And there's a lot of stuff there, but I've not been able to find an agent. (laughs) So if you know an agent or if you are an agent and you think, oh, this would be a good book, you can email me at atparentingsurvival at (laughs) gmail.com. And you can say, I know I am an agent or I am somebody. I am thinking maybe I'll just go directly to the publisher because they may want, want it, but it's more nerve wracking when it's your memoir. If it was just a regular book, it wouldn't scare me as much, but that is a separate issue completely. So I did go back a few months after, I don't even remember when, and I came upon this journal entry and I was thinking, this is a great way to describe grief. And there was just this pull in me that was, it's felt for those of you that are spiritual, it felt outside of me. That was like, this needs to be a grief book. This is a children's grief book. And it was such a simplistic book, very simple words. And the brain doesn't process language when you're in the middle of grief. I couldn't read. And that's a very common thing that I hear from a lot of widows. I could not read. It was actually hard for me to get back into my online work because I couldn't read comments. I couldn't read, like my brain couldn't process stuff for a little while. And so that was really scary for me. But I started, I would, could listen to audiobooks because I can always rewind it. There was something about reading print that was really hard for my brain. And so I liked the fact that this book was simple, like the words were simple. So I thought, well, I'll just send it to the publisher. I got a lot of nagging, I think, from the universe. And I was like, I'll just send it to the publisher that published uh, How to Parent Your Anxious Toddler. They are a mental health publisher. So I sent it to them and I was surprised. They were like, yes, this is great. We would love it. And and I, I wanted it to be hardback, which they don't normally do hardback. And I wanted the art to be beautiful because I wanted it to be a universal book. I wanted it to be a book that anybody could give anyone who was going through grief and it would, it would help normalize their experience. Cause it was just about all the things I just talked about. 
the physical feelings of grief, how it comes and then it goes and then it comes and then it goes, how you can't get away from it, it will find you, but also how it's built from love and how people will sometimes treat you in weird ways. And that just to normalize that experience. And so it has finally come out. It came out May 18th and it is beautiful. It is hardback. They have aged it because they have to, because they're a publisher. I think it's for four to eight-year-olds because the words are so simple. But really my hope, and I feel like the universe's hope, is that it would be a universal book, a universal gift that anybody who's experiencing grief can can relate to. It's simple. It's something that would just be an easy message to digest and language that people can use when they're talking about grief. So it's called The Grief Rock, a book to understand grief and love. And it is available anywhere that you get your books. You can go on Amazon. I made a quick, like an easy URL link. And so you can go to natashadaniels.com slash grief dash book, and it will link you to Amazon. And you know, it really, it was, it was like, it was a book that was created just because there was a need. And because I felt this pull to put this book out into the universe. And so there's no expectation as far as like making money off of the book or, you know, I would, I would love for it to become a universal book for grief, because I think that there was a missing space in the grief books out there for this normalization of grief. And we're not trying to fix it. We're just trying to tell you that we get it. And this is how it feels for most people. And so just want to let you know about it and let you know about the journey that happened to bring that book out. I do have a couple of other books that I am very excited about. Not that I'm not excited about the grief book, but I honestly feel like that was not my baby. That is like the universe's baby. If you're spiritual, I know I am. So I'm a bit weird, woo woo that way. But I do have an OCD workbook coming out for kids between eight and 12 years old. I'm super excited about that. I will tell you more as that comes out. Now that one I will care about in a way that's different than this one. And I know that that one will be very helpful for you directly. And I am still looking to get my social anxiety memoir published because that one's been done for a very long time. And I do feel like that one would be really helpful, I think, for adults with social anxiety. And it's kind of like a memoir slash self-help book. And so I kind of made like a little deal with myself that if I didn't find an agent within the next few months, because I've been off and on querying agents. For the last two years, maybe not two years, because I was like not even human for the last the year before that. So probably for the last year. And I might just shop it around directly to a the publisher that's publishing these other books and see if they're willing to take it. But hopefully that will come out. And that one I will this will be very close to my heart because social anxiety is something that I'm very passionate about because it's an ongoing struggle. Social anxiety is such an ongoing struggle. But that is not what this episode is about. So I do hope that this helps at least normalize whatever grief experience you're going through. If you are going through it, or if you've just been following my journey, I appreciate that. A lot of people have just, you know, been supporting me and my journey through, you know, getting the book. And I just think it's a good one to have on the bookshelf in general, but grief is tough. And sometimes parents will ask me, how can I help my kids with grief? And it's not something I ever want to be an expert in because I don't like grief. (laughs) I don't like that. I have to go through it. But I, I think my my number one advice, because I feel like I've inadvertently become not an expert, but 
someone very well seasoned in the world of grief with children who have anxiety and OCD is acceptance. And that's the one thing that I've had to learn for myself as well is it's going to come and go. And when it comes, you have to honor that space and take time and say, well, I'm getting hit by a boulder right now. And I don't have to judge it and say, it's been two years. Why am I being hit with a boulder? Because I live with this rock and sometimes it's a pebble and sometimes it's a boulder and it will be there for the rest of my life. And honestly, when it becomes a pebble at this stage of grief, sometimes I miss the boulder because it felt closer to him. It felt more raw. And you hear that a lot with people who are going through grief that when it is a pebble, sometimes there's guilt, which there doesn't have to be. Obviously there shouldn't be, but there there can be. And grief is part of love. And so I had to learn how to sit with my child's grief and her sadness, not try to fix it or make her happy or come up with a solution. It was like, it is sad and it isn't fair. I just echoed what she would say. She'd be sobbing and say, it's not fair. It's not fair. You're right. It's not fair. I don't want to fuel her anger because she was very angry at the medical people in the beginning because her dad did call and was concerned about a blood clot. I don't even know if I mentioned that it was a blood clot that killed him. I think I might've forgot that part in my story. (laughs) That was sad. I think I got overwhelmed with the story and I forgot that part. But just sitting with your kid's story and sitting with their sadness is, is really what we need to do and honoring and letting them know. And this is what I would say to her. And it's what I did too. It's like, I might have intentions of doing a million different things, but when that grief wave hits me, I have to honor that and say, oh, you know what? I have to cancel this appointment or I have to cancel these plans because I'm suddenly not feeling okay. And that that's all right. Or I need to take care of myself. We skipped lots of nights of homework or anything. Like it was insignificant. It's like, you need to take care of yourself. And I think as parents, we have to realize that that cycle of grief is lifelong for our kids as well. And even more so, I think on some level, because I had to mourn the idea that I lost every future that I had already planned. I had lost my best friend and my partner. And so I had gained all these new titles in a short period of time. I was now not married. Like to go to bed married and to wake up not married is very disorienting. And to have a new title, like single mom, widow, those were all so foreign to me. I remember the first time I had to check a widow box, I was like, what? And when someone referred to me as a single mom, well, you're a single mom too. I was like, what? Because that's not how I viewed myself. And our kids have to go through that too. Like they might be parentless. They might not have a father or a mother, or maybe if a grandparent was really close to them, now they don't have that grandparent. I think it is different depending on whether it's a parent and a sibling versus a grandparent. But still, you can have a very active grandparent in their life, and all of a sudden, they're gone. And that's overwhelming. And so for our kids, especially when it's a parent or a child, when they hit different developmental stages, it hits them again. And so we have to honor that as well, that my child, who was nine at the time, is going to grieve her dad in a different way when she's 13, and she's a, a teenager, and she has a different way to view things, or when she's walking down the aisle, and she doesn't have a dad with her. When she's graduating, she doesn't have her dad. Like those those moments. If it's a sibling that passed away, it's like when you lap your sibling and now you're the same age as your sibling when they died or when you have your own kids and then you see your sibling in them, there's constant reminders. And the more we fight our grief or we don't give space for our grief or we see it as dysfunctional, the longer we struggle. Because what I've learned is I've had to like, become a surfer. And I had to ride the waves of grief instead of 
it destroying me and, and drowning me. And that that's something that I think those of us that have been very close to grief have had to learn is it's a new relationship with grief. And, and I am two years out. And what I've learned is how to wear a great mask to the public, you know, and I've learned how to handle like the physical pain that still will sometimes come. And I've learned how to pause doing the dishes and go into my closet and sob for, you know, 15, 20 minutes and then come back out and then finish the dishes. I've learned how to give space to all of that. I've learned how to talk about their dad and keep his memories alive without suffering myself later in the night, although that can happen too. But learning how to have this dance with grief is a lifelong process, especially when it's a partner or a sibling or a child, right? That that relationship with grief is 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 a lifelong. And I mean, and it might be different for those of you like my grief with my mom just wasn't as significant. I know that sounds really cold and callous, but it just wasn't. I had a rough childhood and there were some strains in that relationship and it was still very overwhelming, but it was a different I'm not dancing with grief with her. It, I don't feel, you know, so I think each relationship is different. We have to let our kids know that. So I know not about anxiety or OCD today, kind of a deep, uh, serious conversation about something kind of sad, but I do hope that it helps some people out there and I'll be back next week talking about anxiety and OCD. Don't you fret. But if you do want to check out this book, I appreciate the support. You can go to natashadaniels.com slash grief dash book. I'll be back next week. Don't forget to find a sparkle in everything you do. And I'll see you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 